Ladies and gentlemen, I'm full of optimism. Einstein's theory of relativity. We're still seeing it quite well through that haze. He minus 37 seconds. The fight is going to equals MC. That all men are created equal. About the future innovation. And growing strength in the air. This is Finding Your Frequency with your hosts, Jeff Spinard and Ryan Treasure. It's time to speak up, share your voice, and hear from the thought leaders. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another fantastic episode of Finding Your Frequency. I am your host for the day, Ryan Treasure, and want to give a big shout out to everybody out there listening. And of course, if you're listening on your favorite podcatcher device, please make sure you like and share it with your friends and give us five stars because it's way better than four. And we have a bang up show for you guys today as we continue through our series of speaking with the Rich Dad Advisors uh, to Robert Kiyosaki. And uh, what a what a great and, and exciting moment uh, these, these interviews have become we we talked to uh, Andy Tanner about paper assets we talked to Tom Wheelbright uh, Wheelbright about taxes Ken McElroy about real estate uh, and then Blair Singer about business and sales and we had Garrett Sutton on talking about all the legal components and do you do you start an LLC do you go C Corp S Corp and what are the reasons behind why people do what they do and we're gonna round out the rest of the Rich Dad advisors today with Josh and Lisa Lannon who are entrepreneurship experts and I want to welcome you guys to the show awesome Thank thanks you, for having us yeah we appreciate you taking time I know uh, I know as being entrepreneurs you guys are busy all the time something that we talk about on the radio show quite frequently is you know your your standard person has a, a nine to five or an eight to six you know eight nine at ten hour day but that just doesn't exist when you're an entrepreneur. You're kind of going full bore 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Is that right? That's absolutely correct. In fact, like right before we got on here, I got a text from Tom Spooner, our co-founder, and he asked me a question if I'd reached out to someone yet. And I said, no, I need about 70 more hours in my day. So, yeah, it never right? stops. <clears throat> Yeah, I can definitely attest to that. Uh, I've been here at the Voice America Talk Radio Network for about 16 years. Uh, and about 10 years ago, I became a partial partner in the business. And my whole life changed at that point because I was no longer just responsible for my small fraction of tasks. And now I am looking after, you know, the entire operation in, in many capacities and working with our other partners. And um, I went from being an employee to be an entrepreneur. So crazy, uh -huh. right? <laughs> Congrats on the transition because not everyone makes it. It's difficult. And just like you're saying, mentioning with the, there is no clock out. It's you're an entrepreneur. It has to be a lifestyle. There's no <laughs> clock in clock out is you're always on. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I actually had somebody ask me the other day. They're like, why do you give all the, why do you give, you know, we have like 500 customers, you know, and, and, uh, when we do uh, training for the, for our, our radio show hosts and, you know, ongoing training, you know, I always give them my cell phone number and people are like, why, why do you do that? And I'm like, well, number one, if you've ever had tried to manage two phones, it's terrible. Uh, <laughs> number two, why would I not give all my customers my phone number? If they need to get a hold of me, send me a text message, that's fine. There's this really cool thing in technology on your phone called do not disturb mode. And so, right. you know, when it's time for family time, you just turn that on and away you go. People can leave messages. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I agree with you 100% on that one. 
So, you know, finding your frequency for us is all about, you know, the journey uh, in our promo. One of the things that we say is, you know, uh, you have to summon the intestinal fortitude to get out and try and do something different than you've been doing. Get out from that standard nine to five and stop living somebody else's dream and live your own dream. And, you know, I want to kind of just start at the beginning for you guys, because I know you have an extremely interesting story on, you know, how you ended up where you are today. But I want to kind of go back to that beginnings of, you know, back when Josh was running nightclubs and you were a law enforcement officer, Lisa, and kind of just where did all of this get started and how did you guys find your frequency? Hmm. Great question. You want me to kick it off, Lisa? Sure. Go ahead. Awesome. <clears throat> yeah, because it started in our 20s. We were having fun running and gunning in Vegas and I was running nightclubs and Lisa was working in law enforcement. So the, the joke was I'd get people drunk and she'd book them in jail. You know, we had the full <laughs> circle <laughs> all the way around. And that was our frequency, if you will, back then. You know, we had our, our blinds were over our windows all the time. We slept during the day. We were up at night. She worked the graveyard shift too. So that was a different type of rhythm or frequency. And we did well in it. But it was killing me physically, emotionally, spiritually. It was it was draining. And uh, what happens one night? Lisa came home uh, in uniform, and I'd been out on about a three day bender, out partying. And uh, when I, I came to kind of you know and opened my eyes, I saw Lisa above me. <clears throat> she said, uh, "Well, before she said anything, what I saw was the woman I fell in love with, because in my partying." I had lost myself and she had lost herself too. You know, it, it takes two to be in a relationship. So the codependency, the enabling. So she had her side of it too. But what I saw that night was it was done. The gig was up. I could see it in her eyes. And what she said changed my life. She goes, Josh, either you go to rehab tonight or I'm going to divorce you. And that was really what started to change the frequency of our life and make made a major shift. It was her strength to say enough is enough. Well, and anyone that deals um, with addiction or has a loved one, a family member or themselves or in the field, you know, we understand the heartache. We understand that codependency and, and being in law enforcement, I dealt with it all night at work and then I'd come home and I'd deal with it at home too. And over the course of, you know, six years or so, I gave up a part of who I was to that addiction. I gave up a part of my my own independence and my own strength at home. Solid when I went to work or, or was out, but at home I gave up that piece of me. So yeah, it was about two months after 9-11 happened and I just was not ready. I did not want to deal with it anymore. And I was ready to honor that boundary of either divorce or rehab. It was his choice. He could come with me on a different path of frequency, a different path of, of life, or he could go go out on his own. And thankfully he did cho um, choose rehab and he went later that night, that next day. Well, what an, what an interesting part of your guys' story, you know. Uh, you know, I, I've dealt with a family member that, that uh, 
you know, had some substance abuse things going on and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, it was weird as, you know, I tried so hard to, you know, get them to help themselves. I mean, because you guys know this probably better than anybody, like no one's going to go get help unless they're actually ready to go get help. And, you know, I kept yeah. getting phone calls and, you know, messages saying, Hey, I need this. I need help. I need money. I need this. I need that. And I'm like, I'm like, nah, if I give you money, that's just giving you, you know, like a path to go back to doing what you're doing. And you exactly. know, I, I finally, I finally had to just say, look, you, you go to rehab and you show me that you're trying and then I'll try because I can't sit here and just, you know, catch phone calls at 10 o'clock at night randomly because you ran out of drug money and you just want to get high. You know, exactly. Uh, and it was like the toughest thing ever because this was like a family member of mine. And, you know, then they had a problem where they didn't have a, a place to live. And then as they're going through their addiction and then they're asking me to come stay at my house and I'm yeah. going, I'm going, wait a minute. I can't do that to my, my wife, my kids, the dog, even the dogs, even, you know, they're not fair to any of it. And so it's a, <laughs> definitely a tough, right. tough thing to deal with. Well, I think that's where the term love you to death comes from. I mean, you're literally loving them till they die because of the behavior and because of the path that they're on. That's where healthy boundaries come in is to have that healthy boundary says, I love you, but I'm not going to enable these behaviors. You go to rehab tonight, you do these steps or whatever uh, boundaries you have, you put those in place and you hold to them because believe me, I lied, I manipulated, I cried, I'm sorry, honey, this time's different. I went through the whole gamut and finally it was like the gig is up. It's done. And I was ready to change. I just didn't know how to. So it took the strength of a family member of a loved one saying, enough's enough. This is how we're going to do it. And it, well, it worked for me. And boundaries are hard. You know, I always, when I talk to family member to people who have family members in the throes of addiction, I'm like, you have to find a boundary you will stick with. If you go for some long, big boundary that you know you're going to violate, it's not going to work. So sometimes it's baby steps setting those yeah. boundaries, but eventually you'll get to the point where, nope, I can hold this one and, um, and hopefully they'll get help. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, for you guys, uh, always love to hear that everything worked out in the end and, you know, you guys were able to move from that portion of your life. And so how, how did, how did, how did life after rehab go for you guys? Where, where did you go after that? Well, I completed the program, and Lisa and I did quite a bit of couples work together, too, because we were on this journey together. Really, we united hand-in-hand in, hand in marriage and in life at, at rehab, even though we'd been married for a few years prior to that. So we joined hands, went back to Las Vegas, and I went back to running clubs. It's like, I just can't do this anymore. I can't be part of the problem. We were good at our work, at our job. You know, we got a lot of people drunk, helped connect them, you know, uh, people with one night stands and but the, it was like okay then what DUIs and broken marriages it's like I'm done with it so talking to Lisa is like you know I, I, I'm ready to leave this field I met the owner of the treatment center that I went through became friends with him and he planted to see that he would teach me the industry so we had a way out I had a mentor so we called him up and uh, I asked him I said Spencer would you teach me this industry and he said absolutely so that was our way out. Well, and not only that, the night I picked up Josh from rehab, it was Christmas Eve, and his father was out in California. We had dinner with him and, and his brother. 
And when we were getting ready to leave to drive back to Vegas, his dad came up and said, hey, I got this gift for you. <laughs> and it was a infomercial, you know, in a series of CDs by Robert Kiyosaki called Choose to be Rich. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're like, okay, okay. And he made his promise to listen to it. And so on our way back, we, we put in the first CD and we realized hours later, we were just sitting in our driveway listening to it. That really unlocked a whole new world. We were ready for it. They always say when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. And we were ready. There was our next teacher. And he talked about we have a choice in life. And, you know, when we look at it, it's not just choose to be rich. It's choose to be rich in health, wealth, and happiness. It's the whole person, maybe not not just one one road or one path. And that, that along with um, the owner of the treatment facility, offering Josh a mentorship really unlocked that door for our next journey. Great point. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting how some of those things in life just kind of happen in, in a, in an order that's not necessarily planned, but you know um, it, it makes you, it makes you feel like that there's a, like a bigger plan for you or, or for you, for you guys together um, than what you had initially started and, and then getting, getting those, uh, those audios to listen to was probably uh, something that's that that changed your guys's lives forever i mean forever absolutely yeah i i've actually i've had the opportunity to meet robert several times i live in phoenix and so he's he's here in, in town and um he's come into the studio and we've we've chatted he's been on many radio shows and um he's actually getting ready to be at an event here locally as well which i'm trying to get to but um one of the things that always resonated with me uh with some of the things that he talks about is what you just mentioned lisa and that's just you know being rich isn't necessarily rich in this in the in the in the talk of oh i just have a bunch of money but um you know being rich spiritually mentally you know healthy physically all of those things all kind of play because you can't enjoy wealth or money if you don't have the rest of your ducks in a row so to speak right otherwise you'll end up the rest of your life as you get older spending all your wealth on your health as when you get sick and that that was something that we really took a look at i got out of rehab and was like okay alcoholic in recovery i don't want anything to control me ever again not like that and uh, with listening to Kiyosaki and studying the rich dad philosophy, I was like, holy crap, I'm addicted to money. And that was like a punch in the gut. It's like, oh, really? Yeah, take away someone's paycheck for two weeks and you watch a detox happen. People get crazy. And it's like, I don't want to be that. I don't want to be that person that's addicted to money. So we had to figure out how to make money work for us and become masters of money instead of it mastering us. So our, our businesses had to be bigger than money. It had to be, have purpose behind it and mission and team. Money is a byproduct of that. So if we made a bunch of money, then that would be just more of a drug. And we, yeah. want, we never wanted to just chase it. Yeah, you know, that's funny because that was actually one of the questions I had. And, I, and I've seen this happen several times to, you know, different people who have gone through you know, similar circumstances to you where, you know, you have this addiction to A, B and C, you go through rehabilitation, but then you end up just exchanging one addiction for another addiction. And so you're not truly, you know, um, self-aware in that capacity, you know, um, 
like a lot of times you might be addicted to like alcohol and drugs, but then you pick up a smoking cigarettes habit or something like sure. that, right? And you just kind of trade it off. How did, how did you how did you make sure that that didn't happen with you? I know that you said you were addicted to money, but how how did you make sure to give yourself that purpose and make sure that you guys were following a path that wasn't just about money? Because I feel the same way like about my radio show. You know, I don't I don't just do this radio show because I have a few sponsors here and there and I make a couple of bucks on it. I do it because telling stories like this and telling individuals about entrepreneurism, about the struggle, uh, about all of the components that go into it from, you know, uh, you know, like I mentioned in early, all the different uh, mm-hmm. advisors that are on, you know, that's really the purpose of this is, you know, helping people uh, find their frequency by listening to how other people found their frequency. Got it. No, it's a good question because it, it happened to me. At first, you know, I was addicted to business and then addicted to AA and I just channeled all that energy into it. And it's like, okay, is this a, a gift or is it a curse? So through personal development seminars and events and reading, it's like, okay, let me channel this in the right direction where it's not detrimental to my life, to my health, to my family, where I'm not just grinding it out 24 hours a day. And in that, it was like, okay, I can tell you, don't be addicted to money. But if you're struggling financially, that's hard to wrap your head around. It's like, look, I got to feed my kids. I got to pay my bills. So it with like that Maslow hierarchy of need is once you have a base of security, your house, you know, you can live in your house, you're going to feed your family, the lights are on. That's when you can start to build that self-actualization. It's like, okay, I got my base taken care of. How can I now use my energy and my my work to be more purpose driven because if not there there is a roller coaster where you do you go into scarcity i do uh, if i can't feed my kids yeah nobody wants that <laughs> no 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 so hey, what are your thoughts lisa yeah i i agree 100 percent. it's like we have to have that base security before we can start going after what we love what we do because if we're always in scarcity mode or always um, chasing money just to survive, we're not going to go anywhere. And I don't even know if that made sense, but it, it goes back to education. You know, we're, we're big on education. Learn about money. Learn how money works for you. Learn, you know, about your health. Learn about happiness. Learn about personal development. They're all combined. And once you get educated, then you can really start making those decisions that are going to work for you. Because, you know, everyone has their own success of what riches or their own success of happiness. So we all have to find what works for us and then we can start making those achievements and education is the first the first key. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I don't know if you guys know a guy named Greg Champion. He's from the Los Angeles area. He is a rehabilitation guy. He had some similar experiences to you, Josh, and, you know, runs a a couple of rehab centers there. But I was doing an interview with him and we were talking about, you know, that type of thing. And, you know, we we were joking about like, oh, well, what is real success? You know, and, you know, him and I, him and I are both fathers of daughters. And so we at the end of the interview, we both agreed that our our success is just knowing that we grew up, uh, we, we we fathered children that are well adjusted <laughs> that, that would be like the ultimate <laughs> right, the right. ultimate success right it's great if you have money and you can buy them a car and you can get them a college education but do they understand how to manage their emotions do they understand what it is to you know live in a in a, in a society that's ever changing with technology always nagging at your hip and you know understanding some of those kind of things so we both agreed that that was what it was for <laughs> us <laughs> we wanted well adjusted children <laughs> <laughs> absolutely yeah mm-hmm. great point so 
you know, as as you guys are talking about, you know, your 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 frequency and how you how you went from one thing to another and and, and all that. What uh, Lisa, what did you guys do to raise money to like start your business in the beginning? It wasn't fun. I mean, we you know. <laughs> This was back in the days of dial-up internet, if you can think AOL and that noise it made. So trying to find business plans and, you know, a few templates. We wrote, we spent hours. Our our home office was just littered with stuff on the wall and how are we going to get this? And we started out by going to banks. And all the banks said, well, you really need to go back to school and become counselors. And both of us were like, well, we don't want to become counselors. We want to hire the best. We want people that are already working in the field um, to be counselors for our clientele. This is when we're starting our first rehab facility. And so they would kick us out. They'd say, oh, well, maybe we'll give you a car loan or this, this or that. So we just kept going to bank after bank and just started getting that education. What are they looking for? What can we do? And we ended up going to the private sector and um, Josh actually had the first meeting, and he can talk more about that with the, we called him an angel investor at the time. Mm-hmm. And I mean, he literally threw the business plan at Josh and said, your business plan sucks. Get out of my office. <laughs> and it was going back three times. The third time I went with, and we just sat down and told our stories and, you know, what happened and why we wanted to do what we were going to do. And that's when he, he believed in us and, and loaned us the money. Oh wow, yeah, that's interesting. Three times he, your angel investor, was a stickler for that business model, huh? <laughs> well, he was the, he was the only one that would actually talk to us. <laughs> so, so I kept calling him back. You know, I'd go down my list and it got smaller and smaller, and he'd actually take the call. And going through the process, what I found out is it wasn't the business plan. He wanted to see if we could handle the rejection. He wanted to see <laughs> if we could get knocked around and get back up on our feet and keep going. You know, that's interesting. You and I, uh, a little bit before the show, we were talking about martial arts. Uh, and that's funny that you bring that up. That that was uh, uh, something that I got taught. Uh, my, my friend Winston and I were talking about this. And there was a time uh, when I was doing martial arts where, you know, I was going to the dojo every other day, you know, hitting it up on Saturdays for four or five hours, mm-hmm. just just absorbing as much as I possibly could. And um, my, my, my Sifu told me, he's like, you come here too much. Don't come back anymore. <laughs> you know, and I and I I was like, what did I do wrong? You, you mad right. at me? It hurts, right? Yeah, you know, and um, you know, ultimately, what it ended up being was he was testing he was testing whether I whether I was going to continue down the path because I was getting ready to you know test for another another belt and uh mm-hmm. in, in in that set of belts uh as you know uh things start to get quite rigorous and you have to be prepared <laughs> for for those for, <laughs> right. the, for those higher end belts and so uh that that was the lesson that my sifu was teaching me at the time is he is he was teaching me well are are you going to do this are you going to get the rejection and i did i i i i'm like oh you told me not to come back i shouldn't go and i'm like ah, i'm going to go anyways what is he going to do beat me up he's been doing that for years already anyway <laughs> right, right right uh, and so then i go back and he's like i told you not to come back here you're not ready you're, you're you you need to go you need to go take some time off you need to get out of here and you know and i went back for the third day and uh, on the third day was when he finally told me you know what all of that was just a test i wanted to see if you would keep coming back even though i told you not to you know mm-hmm. and uh yeah so that's definitely uh, an important lesson to learn i think is uh, a lesson in resiliency it, it's so true and i think we get caught up and oh it's like the, the example of the business plan it's the business plan it's the business plan it had nothing to do with that 
you know, and that's where people get stuck. It's like, can you get your butt off the floor when you get knocked down? When a bank tells you no, when a private investor tells you no, when whatever, can you get back up on your feet and say, hey, what did I learn? What am I going to do differently next time? And let's move forward. And that's what an entrepreneur really is. One that can, unfortunately, take a beating. And if you're going to be dumb, you got to be tough at least. And it's how bad do we want it, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, my wife and I always joke too. We watch sports together and we'll be watching the teams because like, you know, once the, uh, I'm an Arizona Cardinals fan for NFL. So once the Cardinals are like out of the playoff, then we start looking at like, uh, you know, which which teams are going to be in it. And, you know, and so it's funny. We literally sit there and we like looking at the players and we're like, do you think, do you think that quarterback wants it more than that quarterback or, mm. you know, and uh, I love to use sports analogies, but um, it's a very good way to, uh, to help people to understand some of the things around business. You know, you, you, you go out in the, in the four with a plan you know you, you get out there and you know you're going to get knocked down do you get back up and you know watching offensive linemen and defensive linemen just get beat up and knocked down all the time is a perfect example of an entrepreneur <laughs> that's it that's it you know in martial arts going back to that is I love stand-up martial arts got pretty good uh american kempo ed parker system through paul mills loved it and then i started ground fighting and i was a fish out of water i was like oh my gosh so I had to literally go back to a white belt and start learning that rank system and that process of uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu because it was a whole other aspect to the art that I missed. And uh, now I can incorporate the two together. But it's like, are you humble enough to say, I don't know this. Please teach me and be teachable. <laughs> That's funny that you bring that up too, because I always tell people like you know, depending on 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 what martial arts that you're doing, like if you do karate and stand up stuff, you don't really know a whole lot until you get into uh you know into the other other forms where you're forced to be like face to face, right? Like <laughs> right. like I always I, my, my my buddy's a wrestler, right? So he wrestled in high school and all that kind of stuff, and he does m multiple martial arts, and you know him and I firmly believe that people who come from a jujitsu and wrestling background be ultimately become the most well-rounded martial artists because they're not afraid to, you know, get in those tight spaces that happens uh, in wrestling and jujitsu. That's it. And that's what happens in life. Hey, the bills are coming in pressure. I can't get any sales, whatever it is. It's like, I, okay, relax, breathe. I've been here before I can get out of this instead of panicking, which most people do. I've been guilty of it and making the situation worse. That's what martial arts teaches. Like, all right, you're already in a crappy situation. Don't make it worse. Don't be stupid. Yeah. Breathe, relax. You can get out of this. You're okay. And find a way out. So Lisa, what is your advice uh, for people who want to start their own company? How, how, how would, how would you, you know, give them some nuggets of information on, on, on some things they should know before they step outside of their comfort zone? Well, first it would be to find a mentor coach, find someone who's actually walking the walk, who's doing it in real life, not just from, from books or teachers, you want someone who can give you those practical applications. What I've learned is, you know, we've had many mentors and coaches throughout our, our years doing this, and they're so willing to share. You know, we, we come from a space where we want others to succeed. There's enough success and abundance in the world that, you know, let's help each other out. So finding that coach or mentor who's willing to to share with you the mistakes, the lessons learned, the wins, so we don't have to repeat them ourselves. Anytime we can learn a mistake from someone else and not, not go through that pain, I think is great. Um, so that's step number one. And then really find out what's your why, what gets you going every day, 
you, you're going into business, what's the true reason why? It has to get you up every morning when it's late nights, working all night. It's got to keep you going. You got to be sustainable with what you want to do. Yeah, that's a really good point. I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up. Sustainability and um, uh, I, I joke I joke with my wife and I say, what is your stick to Uh, I want to expand a little bit on one thing that you brought up about, you know, coaches and mentors. And I think this is uh, an important topic for people in general, because, you know, you're on social media, you're on, you know, Instagram and Facebook, and you see all these, you know, ads for the, like, I'm a guru in this, and I'm a guru in that, and you can spend this amount of money and I'm going to help you do that. I want to remind people that is not a mentor. Right. A mentor, a mentor doesn't charge you for their time. They do that because they're giving back. Right. And, and I, and I think that that's something that's important for people to understand is, you know, they, they, they shouldn't get the, you know, the coach or the mentor twisted with the uh, paid coach or paid mentor. Correct. Yeah. Otherwise they're just a consultant you're paying for their time and, and we don't know if they have the experience or not. That's why I always like to find someone that's walked that walk the walk. You know, they've been there. They've got the the ground experience because business is a contact sport. As you guys are talking martial arts, you know, you're you're going to get hit, maybe not physically, but you've you've got to learn to take those hits and keep going. Yeah, that's 100 percent. So as you guys were, you know, starting this newly found business and, you know, helping people down their path to rehabilitation, um, and obviously you eventually got some funding, you got that off the ground. Uh, how did you make sure that as you were riding that path that you guys were surrounding yourselves with people that had uh, the same mission uh, in, in, in their hearts as you guys did, that they were, uh, so to speak, riding the same skateboard that you rode? Mm, that's that's a good question because we made a lot of mistakes and we still we still do not as many as we used to as far as onboarding recruiting and hiring staff um you know at the beginning we thought okay it's the credentials you have the acronyms at the end of your name you've got the schooling okay you're qualified it's like uh uh-huh no that just gets the person to the table it's the cultural fit is huge when building a business does this person fit your culture? What are your company core values? What's your mission statement? What's your vision? Can they get behind that? And then do you have a selection process in the beginning to put that candidate through it so you know at the end of it through pressure if that's the person that's right for the team? Because it's usually people know how to game an interview. You game it, they get hired, and it's about two months later, you're like, holy crap. Now, because you just found out who this person really is by their behaviors, it's like, man, I wish there was a way I could fast track that and find out what this person's like under pressure way before we've now spent all this time and money training them and the person's not a fit and it's not fair to them either. That's a big one. One of the things we've done for that selection process, uh, one tool for our financial uh, departments is we play cash flow one-on-one with them. We want to see what they're like. You know, can they even read a financial statement? You know, they show up as experts, but once you put them in the game, oh my gosh, we've seen some amazing stuff come out of it. And you see their behaviors because reflection, you know, the game will bring out people's behaviors. It's pretty interesting. Yeah, that's funny that you bring up that cash flow game. I think every other of the six (laughs) 
<laughs> advisors have brought that up and we've all we all we all touched on it a little bit because um you know it's like a, you know uh, i haven't played cash flow with my kid yet but we really like to play monopoly right because of the uh-huh, some, some, uh-huh. some of the same reasons and it is amazing to watch a six-year-old get angry about having hotels on her spots <laughs> land on the board you know and i'm like it's awesome and I, and I tell my wife i'm like we're gonna we're in trouble later this kid is you know she's she's tenacious and she's like i, I want all of the hotels <laughs> like what did I create? <laughs> and I'm like, You're and, but that's that's the beauty of it. Once they understand how money works, you know the the doors are wide open. And you know the same with employees or you know onboarding staff members is once they understand money or the position and they have a strong connection to it, that strong why they want to you know be in the field or or do what they're going to do. Those doors are open. And I love watching the kids when they, they light up when they finally yeah. get it. Yeah. Yeah, that's 100%. You know, I, I do a lot of hiring here uh, at, at Voice America. I, I manage our broadcast operations. So I work with audio engineers and video and audio editors and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I take the same approach with them. We're not dealing with money-based components like in that space. But um, in my in, in my interview, I'm going to be, I'm like, here's a hard drive. Um, there's a computer right there. Can you uh, edit something out of that for me? You know, yeah, and, yeah. and and really put them under task because you're you're 100 percent correct. You can have uh, a great interview and answer all the questions right, but can you work through what we're asking you to do? And can you problem solve in real time? And the other mm-hmm. thing for the other thing for us too is, I mean, we we do a lot of customer facing things, so it's really important for me that you know somebody knows how to talk to other people, to communicate, to have a conversation without without getting agitated. Uh, you know, because that adage of the customer is always right is not always right. Um, sometimes the customer is not right, but you don't want to make sure. them feel bad about being wrong. And how do you deal with that? And it's important for employees to probably, you know, be able to have some social skills in that space, which is why I'm so adamant with my daughter on, you know, how we manage our emotions and how we work through things and, and those types of things, because the 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 older i have become the younger my employees have become and i've started to notice a shift in some of the younger employees where they literally have an entire section of their skill set that is missing and that's social skills it's like they just sat at home and played video games and yelled at each other on gaming headsets for like 18 <laughs> years and then the next uh. thing they know now they want a job and they can't even deal with their own emotions let alone have a conversation with somebody uh so that's that. That's one I think. First that, <laughs> first, that eye to eye, like we were talking about with wrestling, sweat to sweat, eye to eye. <laughs> it's very different than on headsets yelling at people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's why it's funny. I see my my neighbor who lives across the street. You know, uh, their uh, their older sister. She just left to go to the air force, and you know, and he's over there playing like Fortnite and all these like third person shooter games. And I'm like, hey. You know, uh, at one point, if you because he said he wants to go into the military too, I said you should probably get outside and run around or something because uh, when you get to boot camp, you're not going to be uh, on a train stick or any <laughs> Big of that surprise. kind of stuff. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah, and that's something that looking back, I wish I would have done is join the military. I think they have some of the best leadership training in the world. You know, for entrepreneurs, our daughter's dating a, a young man that already graduated high school. And, he wants to be an entrepreneur, and that's my recommendation to him. Is he's like the Marine Corps, it's like, hey, join the Corps for four years. They'll teach you how to be a leader, and then you can take apply those skills to the civilian sector. 
Oh. And it's interesting watching him go through his process. But I mean, that I, I would. Yeah, no, you're 100% correct. I, I was in the Navy myself, and I'm telling you right now to this day, there are so many things that I learned in in the Navy about perseverance and leadership, uh, and just dealing with my, my you know my fellow shipmates and and those types of things that you can't you can't learn that stuff anywhere else. Everybody thinks it's like oh you go there to get yelled at. Well, yeah, you do. You get yelled at a lot, uh, but at the same time, there are some skills that you can't learn anywhere else. And you learn how to have people yell at you. Yeah, and, <laughs> you know, and, and not get mad at them. It's like what we were talking yeah. about earlier, right? It's like you get knocked down, you get back up, you get knocked down, you get back up. <laughs> exactly. You don't melt and cry in a corner. No, nothing like being yelled at and you just got to stand there and take it. <laughs> oh, yeah. I feel bad for like the older generation of military people. Like, you know, my father was in the military and, uh, you know, back in those days, like your drill sergeant could hit you. You know, like nowadays, Crazy. yeah, nowadays it's like, yeah. you know, unheard of, but I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, I don't know. I did pretty good when I was younger and, you know, I did something wrong and I got corrected with a, you know, swat to the booty or a belt or something like that. I mean, I did, I, I never did that again. I can tell you that <laughs> <laughs> you learn your lesson. That's for sure. So how did you guys approach building, uh, you know, your, your team using the rich dad principles when you were starting your business? I know that, you know, you're talking about kind of some of the pieces with, uh, you know, sitting down and playing cash flow, but how specifically did the rich dad principles help you start? There's a, a tool that we use called the BI triangle business and investing. And we've, we've used that it's in a number of his books. We've used that BI triangle to build our business plan, to uh, build the onboarding, to help drive some of our systems and our processes. We found that it's a great universal tool that applies to any business because it's principally driven. And that's how we're able to build our first company journey to six locations in multiple states with really, we had no money. We raised the money, we built it up, we sold it to a private equity company and then took a year off and then that, then we used the BI triangle again and uh, built our second large company, Warriors Heart. That's the one that we're operating now, which serves active military veterans and first responders exclusively. So drug and alcohol treatment, PTSD, trauma, wrapped around uh, an inpatient treatment center. But it was driven through the BI triangle uh, to build the team. Oh, that's awesome. Um you know, you talk about helping the first responders, uh, veterans, and, you know, PTSD is probably, I don't, you know, it's funny. I, I grew up with my, my father who was in Vietnam. Uh, my dad was 27-year Army veteran. Uh, he was a Green Beret in the 101st Airborne and flew all kinds of crazy helicopter missions. And right on. my dad had probably the worst PTSD, you know, I've ever seen. I have a bunch of friends that have gone to Iraq and come back and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, what I think was crazy at that time is the 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 issues with PTSD there was no magnifying glass on that at the time you know like these guys are getting you know spit on and yelled at when they come back from you know serving their country and you know having seen you know all kinds of craziness in the in the in the fog of war and then having to deal with that with no support system um, you know big kudos to you guys for having a support system because I I'm I am the son of 
somebody who had PTSD and I grew up my whole life with my father dealing with PTSD and not having any kind of outlet or the military even recognizing that he was having a problem. Wow. Yeah, my my dad too. He's a Vietnam vet and same thing. You know, they were just taught you don't talk about it. It just gets shoved down in a deep, dark hole and you deal. You deal with it the best you can, whether it's through you know, alcohol or some other, some other outlet, but they really don't have one. And, you know, I'm grateful that the stigma is starting to leave and it's being talked about more and more to where our, even our Vietnam vets are starting to open up. Yeah. And I know it's so hard for those guys to open up to, um, you know, comparatively speaking, you know, I talked to uh, my friends who are hospital, uh, you know, Navy corpsmen, hospital corpsmen, they got stationed with Marine recon units. And so they were boots on the ground, just like an infantry soldier, you know, dealing with roadside bombs and all these different things. And, you know, even hearing my friend, you know, talk about some of those different things that they dealt with, you know, in Afghanistan and all that. Luckily for me, I was just on a ship. I was on a floating island, a floating city, you know, so I didn't I didn't have to deal with, you know, boots on the ground types of scenarios like those guys did but um you know my dad though like i mean these guys had like you know kids with bombs in their diapers and all this crazy stuff back in vietnam that i think that you know it wasn't quite the same type of warfare that was been happening in the in the newer times either um and just a testament to how strong those individuals are being able to you know come back from that with no support and still you know be able to raise a family and still be able to carry a job and do all those things and you know um luckily for me my dad never my dad never got you know crazy into alcohol like he would have a beer and then that was all if he had any beers um and you know, luckily for that, but a man, I could hear him at night having nightmares and cold sweats and waking up in the middle of the night. And that's where his torture was for him, for his PTSD was, you know, all within these crazy vivid dreams that he would have. And, you know, just not having an outlet for that, you know, and, and it just, it, it makes me feel really good that you guys are out there doing what you're doing and providing some help and assistance in that space. Um, how do you guys make sure that you find the right team at, at warrior's heart? Because, you know, I know that you were you, you did the addiction treatment stuff with Journey previous, but um, is what you're dealing with now at Warrior's Heart is it is it is it more sensitive or is it the same? Uh, and how do you go about making sure you have the right team for that? Well, our team, I would say, ninety five percent of them, in some way, shape, or form, have either served or have a loved one that has served, um, whether it is military, law enforcement, firefighter in that sense of everyone understands either from, you know, personal, um, personal experience or through a loved one. And when our clients come in, we call them clients, not patients, because we don't want them to feel sick or in a hospital um, setting. That camaraderie is there instantly. It's like, you get me, you understand what I've gone through. I'm not sitting in a treatment facility across from someone who doesn't understand and just wants to hear stories like it's movie time. You know, they're processing their own trauma, their own stuff that they've gone through. So the person sitting on the other side of the the chair or even in a group has to understand. Otherwise, they're just not going to get the healing they deserve. Yeah, and you're right. This is a specialized program. The, The team gets to be specialized and highly trained as well. Um, one of the things we, we do is it's called warrior oversight. So, for example, our partner, Tom Spooner, um, 
Army, retired out. Uh, he did 10 years at the unit. He was 101st Airborne, then Green Beret, uh, then he passed selection into the unit, Tier 1 operator. And uh, so when we have different ideas or modalities that the clinical team presents, it's like, hey, warrior oversight, will this work with this population? So we always have a vetting process to make sure we just don't get the good idea fairy comes in. It's like, does this work for our warrior population? And we have warriors that provide feedback to that. Otherwise, it will be ran by administration, which I think there's a lot of programs that have good intent, but there's a disconnect from the front line. You need guys that have been there, done that, that can provide that input of, hey, man, this works, this doesn't work, let's tweak this a little bit. So as a team, we're always getting feedback, uh, providing feedback to each other and getting feedback from our clients on what's being effective for them. I think that's an interesting, you know, way of going about dealing with, uh, you know, the clients that you guys work with because I, I know, I know that I feel so much more comfortable when I'm talking about you know, stuff that I saw, heard, did, whatever the case may be when I was in the Navy, I feel better being able to have those conversations with another person who was in the military, whatever branch they were in, it doesn't matter. Like there's a, mm -hmm. you know, a camaraderie that's just almost identical, even though, you know, the Marines call the Navy squids and we call them jarheads and all that kind of stuff, <laughs> you know, crayon eaters and all that. Right. Sure. But at the same time, at the end of the day, when, when we're all, you know, back stateside and, you know, having conversations about, you know, who we are and what we're doing in our lives you know that that portion of being in the military kind of goes away and you have a, a, a kind of a level playing field and the ability to have some conversations that frankly I wouldn't even maybe have with my own wife you know because she well, she doesn't understand either well you're spot on and that's why warriors heart is unique is that it's a licensed accredited program just for the warrior class so not only our militaries, but we're also bridging the gap between the military and the law enforcement because they're the same, built from the same cloth. Yep. That is your brother. That is your sister. So like you're talking about, the different branches still have the camaraderie and they, they uh, rub each other a little bit in a good way. Now we're seeing it too with the law enforcement side of it and the first responders and the EMS, they're realizing like, hey, we're all cut from the same cloth. And there was, a, there was an event that happened at Warriors Heart, which is incredible. We had a, a, a veteran come in. He attempted suicide by cop. That's when you know, he tries to have the cops shoot him. And we had some officers in there that had a suicide by cop event. And the, when the two connected and they processed through what that really meant, it's like you're asking your brother to shoot you. You know how much that is is impacting us on the other side and then the veteran the healing that he got from when he finally realized it'd be like yeah a marine asking an army guy to shoot you it just it, what it doesn't make sense yeah. so that's why we have the, this program it's designed just for those warriors for that peer network and magic happens well and you know our law enforcement firefighters you know they're they deploy to the streets they may not deploy overseas but they're dealing with potential combat situations, hostile situations, protection situations on a day-to-day -day basis, you oh. know, on our own soil as well. So that that camaraderie works, you know, it, it's just, it's amazing to watch it happen. Oh, you guys are 100% correct. This just happened here in, locally here in, in Phoenix where I live just over the weekend. Um, I'm, 
I'm sitting at my house and I hear an ungodly amount of gunfire. Like, and it was so close. I come to find out it was literally the next street over. And um, they had just like a straight on gang shootout with two opposing gangs. The police showed up on site. Um, and then the next thing you know, you have four police officers in the middle of a shootout with 12 gang members, right? Oof. And it was literally warfare in the middle of the streets. And, you know, if you if you tell me today that that can't cause PTSD for those officers, just the same as, you know, a Marine guy going door to door in Iraq doing infiltration drills and such, then we can't be friends. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah, that was a scary situation for me this weekend. I, I saw the coroner's van leave and go back like four times. So, damn, you know, it, when when you talk about they deploy to the streets, you know, they do deploy to the streets. And I'm telling you, those streets, depending on where you live, you could live in the nicest neighborhood on planet Earth. You don't know what's going on three streets from you or, yeah, absolutely. or, or, or what have you. So big kudos to house that. next door. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's true. Well, I, I think I, I think my cameras point at the houses next door so I can see what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> well played. Thanks, thanks Alexa. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I know you guys are also honorary members of the Young Presidents Organization. Uh, you know, let's talk a little bit about that. And then I want to I want to chat about your book, the social capitalist book and, and, and what drove you guys to write that. Sure. No, yeah, I'll speak to that. I'm a member of YPO. <clears throat> YPO, a young president's organization. Their sister organization, EO, entrepreneurs. And that's a good, um, like, starting for entrepreneurs. There's qualifications in order to make it. Uh, and then the, the step above that is YPO. And the idea of it is, is being around like-minded people, again, your peers. Who can I talk to about employee problems or uh, even life problems? I shouldn't be doing that to my staff. I shouldn't be giving my staff my problems. So where do I go? So YPO or EO is a network of your peers that uh, are having maybe some of the same struggles or have achieved some of the stuff that you're going through and can provide some guidance through it. So it's an incredible organization that does education, personal development, as well as peer network uh, for problem solving. It could be personally or professionally. Oh, that's awesome. I, I, I need yeah. I need to be a member of the YVPO. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So you guys have traveled the world with Robert and Kim Kiyosaki and given financial education tips to entrepreneurs. Uh, you know, I bet that was probably a blast getting to do that. Um, is, is that is that what led you guys into the social capitalist book? It did. I'll speak a little to Lisa and then have you jump in as you know, as entrepreneurs, we were going to the seminars, to the events, listening to Amy, Tom, Ken speak on stage. It was like what we really resonated with is these guys are doing what they're actually talking about on stage. Like they actually have successful businesses and they're running what they're doing. So we wanted to contain Robert, you know, phenomenal speaker. He's, he's a Marine though. He's, he yeah. runs his, his rooms tight. <laughs> and it was like, I like him. I respect him. I like him. We want to continue learning from him, but his seminars, they're expensive as broke entrepreneurs. Like, man, we're getting value out of this, but what are some other ways we can solve the problem? 
So we found that we could volunteer. So that's what we did. We started volunteering, straightening in the chairs, hanging up the flip charts, doing registration, anything. And what was cool is then we started to learn the back end of the of the business, if you will, of, of the seminar, how to set up the room. I mean, there's a lot that goes into that. And uh, so as we're learning and serving, we started traveling with them internationally because we're like, hey, wherever you go, we're in. And then that's when our personal uh, relationship really started to take off. I was, uh, because of my background in martial arts, I was assigned to Robert's personal bodyguard in Malaysia. I was like, hell yeah, I'll do that. Right on. <laughs> so we're in the back green room and he's getting ready to go out on stage. And he goes, Josh, tell me a little bit about your story. You know, how'd you get here? So I told him a little bit about the story and the choose to be rich and how we became students. He's like, huh, that's a good story. You should tell it more often. Like, okay, sounds good. Well, Needless did I know, he's getting ready. There's about, what, 4,000 people out there in Malaysia. And uh, he looks over to me, and I'm standing next to Blair Singer. He goes, hey, Josh, are you ready? And it was like that moment of truth, like, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> and it was that window. It's like I can step out, and the window could be closed forever, or I can go for it. So I took it. I said, yes, sir, I'm ready. He goes, all right, Blair, get him ready. So Blair goes, what are you talking about? I go, I don't know. He goes, ah, you'll do fine. <laughs> they put the mic on me and I went out on stage with Robert. And the first time was a little clunky. I mean, I was scared to death. I would have rather been in a cage fight than go out there and speak, you know, to 4,000 people. My heart was racing. My body was freaking out. But, hey, I went through the process. Next, we traveled to um, Australia and we also went to Singapore but that's when it really came together is he pulled Lisa up too. And that's the other half of the story, right? That's what creates oneness with Lisa and I. So we started feeding back and forth the story and boom, ever since then, it was like Robert would keep pulling up us on stage. And then one time we were on stage and he goes, and Josh and Lisa are writing a book, aren't they? <laughs> like, yes, sir, we are. <laughs> <laughs> so those windows of opportunities, they come to all of us. It's just, do we have the guts and the faith to lean through it and to go for it? Do we make mistakes? Of course. Do I feel like I act like an idiot on stage? Yes. But I learned from it and I got better each time. And I just kept doing it and Lisa kept doing it. And it's like, all right. We got a book, and now we're talking to you on the radio show. Pretty awesome. That's awesome. Lisa, were you scared up on stage the first few times you got up there? I was. You know, it, it's always nerve-wracking. Just am I going to say the right thing? You know, what are they going to – what if they ask a question I don't know the answer to? But once I learned to let that go and just be present, I've always found out the answers come. And, yeah, I may some, say something that doesn't make any sense at all, but I'm not afraid to admit it, you know. Oh, well – I don't know where I was going with that. You know, as long as I admit it, then the audience seems to be okay with it. So it's been quite quite a journey. And I still speak with Kim. Um, we speak around the world two, sometimes three times a year to other women. And we've done it, you know, in London, India, South Africa, Singapore, Russia. So still on this journey of, of teaching with her. And, you know, we do a great program for women as well. Oh, that's so awesome. 
I want to I want to thank you guys for being on the show today. It's been such an honor and a pleasure hearing your story of, you know, where you came from and and how you got there and where you're at now. And uh, that's that's so awesome. Before we before we uh, end the show, though, I, I need to know uh, how can people help Warriors Heart? How do they get involved? How do they you know donate their time? How do they how do they do that? Because I know that uh, there's probably a lot of people listening that would love to know information on how they can help. Well, Warrior's Heart is a private entity, so the treatment facility site is, is private, and that's just through lessons learned. I used to sit on the Arizona Governor's Commission um, for Youth Treatment, and we would provide grants to, to facilities, and their sustainability, if they didn't get the grant from the government, they shut their doors. So we learned, you know, we want our facilities not to be reliant upon um, funding and have that mission drift mm -hmm. to where we became a fundraising company. So Warrior's Heart is a private entity, but then out of necessity, we did form a foundation called Warrior's Heart Foundation. And that, that became because guys may not have VA benefits, may not have insurance. So how can they still come to treatment? Well, they can apply for a hardship and that's through the Warrior's Heart Foundation. So it's two separate entities okay. um, ran by different boards. But you can find us at warriorsheart.com. That's awesome. Thank you guys again for being on the show. And for those of you guys who are listening, make sure you head on over to Amazon and go pick up The Social Capitalist and read all about the fantastic human beings we have here, Josh and Lisa Lana. Thank you guys so much for being on the show. Okay, thanks for Thank having us. Ladies and gentlemen, you're tuned in to Finding Your Frequency right here on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Please make sure you go check out the website at findingyourfrequency.net. And of course, we're here every Friday at 12 o'clock Pacific time, 3 p.m. Eastern. And sometimes we drop a few little mini-sodes, I like to call them, throughout the week. If we have some uh, shorter interviews, I'd like to make sure that you guys get to listen to all of the meat and potatoes that we have going on here at Voice America. And again, big shout out to Josh and Lisa Lannon for joining uh, the show today. And uh, thanks to Liz Kelly uh, for getting this all set up and uh, thank you guys again for listening and this will round out our rich dad advisor series and uh well hopefully we'll be coming back and doing one with robert kiyosaki in the next couple of weeks i've been trying to lock him down but he's really busy um so it's he hasn't said no he won't do it he just said he can't do it right now because we haven't found time but uh we're definitely going to get that one and cap off this with him as well uh, and then so make sure you guys like and share the so uh, this on social media you can find me on twitter at radio ryan one and you can find jeff at jeff spinney two and of course follow the network at voice of America TRN. Thanks for tuning in.